Any overview of birds reveals remarkable facts. Nearly every kind builds its nest differently. Courtship behavior, sexual roles, and reproductive activity vary among almost every species. In one bird, females gather food while males tend the eggs. And when did the sexes diverge for birds or any other animal? Even some plants are male and female. How did this happen? There are a number of videos that adequately explain the evolution of sex. I don't have time to go into it in depth, but in brief, sexual reproduction occurred before there were plants or animals. It began as one of a few forms of horizontal gene transfer, commonly known in microbes as conjugation. This was later adapted in unicellular protists. Most single-celled eukaryotes reproduce asexually with binary fusion, just like bacteria usually do. But some of them reproduce by sharing gametes, and this practice was continued in subsequent lines of plants and animals. As you mentioned, some plants reproduce sexually, but not all of them. And most animals reproduce sexually, but again, not all of them. Now, one of these days I'm going to do a video on the oddities of some animals' sex life, some of which is just so fucked up that that alone should be sufficient argument against there being any god. Seriously, some of that is really disturbing. For the moment, though, you should understand that even some vertebrates are able to switch from sexual to asexual reproduction and back again. There are advantages to both methods, but sexual reproduction dramatically accelerates evolution and increases resistance to infectious diseases. On rare occasions, even among normally sexually reproductive animals, there are virgin births. This is called parthenogenesis. This isn't one of the many natural examples of uh, both genders being represented or expressed in a single individual, nor is there any instance of a male being born of a virgin. That never happened. Because parthenogenic females essentially produce genetic clones of themselves without need of a male. For example, we have a species of parthenogenic lizards in New Mexico that are a species of asexual genetic clones. The New Mexico whiptail is an entirely female species which apparently uses a mock courtship ritual in order to instigate ovulation. So if you want to argue for an intelligent designer, you'll have to accept that he must like identical lesbian lizards simulating sex. Hummingbirds represent true creative genius. They weigh one-fourteenth of an ounce and, like helicopters, can fly forward, backward, sideways, or hover. Their flight mechanism is incredibly complex, and the quills in their feathers are stronger for their weight than any structure ever designed by man. These quills constantly change shape to adjust for wind and air pressure. The leading vein of their feather functions like a propeller for lift and propulsion. Think, three-quarters of their entire weight are wing muscles. They possess a kind of jet-assisted mechanism for landings and takeoffs. Air flows only one way into their lungs to bring a constant supply of oxygen for strenuous high-speed flight. They also have retractable landing gear, a migration navigation system, streamlining, camouflage, and an extraordinary respiration system that stores extra air inside their hollow bones. This also provides buoyancy and an internal air conditioner. Hummingbirds must eat continually to satisfy their high metabolism. Stopping would mean death. Only through a kind of hibernation at night can they survive. Could all of this have evolved or just happened? Of course! The quills of a hummingbird's wing are so strong for their weight only because the whole bird weighs less than a penny. 
Of course, wind and pressure will change their shape, but there's no intent or design in that. If this was an intelligent design, then why is it so inefficient that they have to constantly eat or die? They don't have any jet-assisted mechanism, nor air conditioning either, nor do they have retractable landing gear. Those are legs, just like any other dinosaur has. You're trying to make it sound like a creation by describing it as if it were a machine, but these are organisms that reproduce on their own and don't have to be built or designed. Hummingbirds do have hollow bones, though, just like all other birds. These and its feathers are two of the most obvious out of a suite of traits that put it in the dinosaur category. Now, I'm not saying that birds, but I'm not just saying that birds are descended from dinosaurs. We now know that birds are dinosaurs, that they're still dinosaurs right now. Just like hummingbirds are a subset of birds, birds are a subset of dinosaurs. And I know you're thinking of dinosaurs and birds as if they were different biblical kinds, but the Bible is really vague and confused about that and doesn't have any authority anyway because it was written by ignorant primitives who define things by what they do rather than what they are. They put birds into multiple kinds of all sorts, whatever those are, and there's no definition for what any of this means because it doesn't mean anything. That's why the Bible describes bats as birds. The people who made up these myths didn't know anything about zoology or taxonomy. The avian respiration system is more efficient than the lungs we mammals have. It enables lightweight birds as well as pterosaurs sufficient energy for sustained flight, and it allowed some non-avian dinosaurs to grow to enormous sizes. Don't you wish we had such a good respiratory system as they do? That trait evolved within archosaurs, so we didn't get it. It's an inherited evolutionary trait, not an administrative decision, so there's no one to complain to about that. But if you believe in the power of prayer, give it a shot. You will fail. Like bumblebees, which also appear to completely defy the laws of physics and flying ability, the hummingbird is just as unique but even closer to aerodynamic perfection. How hard is it to fly when you weigh less than three grams? I was always interested in science where no one else I met as a child cared for that at all. Instead, most people seemed to feel threatened by anything I understood as a boy. And they always tried to discredit science by saying that science says it's impossible for a bumblebee to fly. Turns out, not surprisingly, that's a lie. In 1934, French zoologist and aeronautical engineer Antoine Magnan remarked that it was impossible for any insect to fly. He didn't limit that to bumblebees. He made this outrageous claim because he didn't have high-speed photography, so he had no idea how insects' wings move. He foolishly assumed that they just flapped up and down. So he made the same mistake you did by assuming that if he doesn't understand it, then it isn't even possible, even though all the evidence necessary readily proves that it is possible and he didn't know what he's talking about. And neither do you. Only God could have made such an efficient flying machine. No aeronautical engineer has ever designed anything close to this tiny marvel of flight. Because I never tried, because I don't need to. And because organisms are emergent cellular structures far more intricate than our macroscopic machines. But this is not due to any god. You still haven't shown what a god could or couldn't do, because you haven't even shown there is reason to believe such a thing. Nor have you contested any of the many reasons why you should accept and admit that God is only imaginary. You're living in a land of make-believe. The anglerfish, archerfish, and anableps all literally swim in the face of evolution. 
The female angler has a lure hanging from an appendage on her nose. It attracts fish so she can strike and swallow them. The male does not have one because he never eats. Rather, he attaches himself to the female, allowing their bloodstreams to merge, thus feeding him. Evolutionists have no explanation for anglerfish. Yes, we do, of course. This article talks about how an international team of marine biologists used genomic sequence analysis to trace the evolution of hundreds of separate species of anglerfish within dozens of different genera emerging from 18 taxonomic families within five phylogenetic suborders. Using molecular clock Bayesian analysis of the divergence times indicates that subordinal diversifications within a particular parental lineage all occurred between a, within a relatively short time period between 100 and 130 million years ago in the early to mid-Cretaceous. Phylogenetic data constructed a series of cladograms for each of the subgroups, tested alternate hypotheses, and even specifically addressed the relatively few species wherein the male becomes a morbidly absorbed parasite of the female and ceases to exist as anything more than an otherwise digested sack of sperm. Don't you ever get tired of being wrong about everything all the time? The archerfish can shoot down bugs above the surface by squirting. Water severely bends or refracts light and should cause an impossible targeting problem for the fish. It is score or starve. How do all archerfish instinctively know how to perfectly compute the angle of light refraction to successfully hit prey? God built it in. Objection. Unsupported assertion. You still haven't shown that there is a God, nor that it could do anything, much less that it has done anything. That is only your assumption, and it is without merit. Marksmen learn real quick that if your sights are off, you compensate. In this case, you shoot slightly high. Seriously, it's not that hard, especially not when you do it for a living and you have only one job. Because it is not score or starve. You can try again and again as many times as you need to because you have an inexhaustible supply of ammunition. The anableps has extraordinary eyes. It sits on the surface, seeing out of water and underwater at the same time. Its eyes are divided into two parts. How did evolution cause half an eye to gradually evolve to see out of water and the other half underwater? A moment on Google would have shown you a number of studies that answer this. Anableps share this fortuitous deformity with two other closely related species within a single genus. Their genes were compared to another unaffected but closely related species from a sister genus. All of these from an obviously evolutionary relationship. How they evolved is pretty obvious just from the morphology. Uh, the lens is distorted above and below and the only subsequent enhancement of that is an asymmetrical arrangement of the opsins in the retina. Ridiculous. What engineer has ever made such efficient submarines whose design makes them perfect hunters, so well suited for their needs and environment? The question is not who did it. That presupposes a personality, one which also defies the laws of physics and has still never been indicated despite all your arguments from incredulity. Fish are not submarines. Quit pretending that living organisms are like invented machines. Your God is an invention. Fish are not. They have phylogenies, taxonomic relationships that they wouldn't have if they were specially created, but that they do have because they're evolving. Natural selection provides an incidental design adequate for these far from perfect predators. More scientists accept that the overwhelming evidence of design all around us requires a great designer. No, they don't. 
Poll after poll shows that belief in a god or higher power has always been less likely among scientists and has been steadily declining for more than a hundred years, such that scientists who are believers are a pitiful minority now. This is especially true among the earth and life scientists, the very ones who would be siding with you if there was any truth to your position at all. But there isn't. There is no indication of intelligent design, and no one knows that better than biologists and geologists. And acceptance of any other explanation denies reality. You're the one who denies reality. That's your job, to make believe an imaginary alternative. But the fact is that evolution is a demonstrable reality and an inescapable fact of population genetics and phylogeny, while creationism literally is a denial of reality, and this is openly admitted in the faith statements of creationist organizations. The first quote sets up the second. Everyone concludes naturally and comfortably that highly ordered and designed items, machines, houses, etc., owe existence to a designer. It is unnatural to conclude otherwise. But evolution asks us to break stride from what is natural to believe and then believe in that which is unnatural, unreasonable, and unbelievable. You subscribe to a belief system in which snakes and donkeys can talk, where wizards and witches cast spells, where there are giants and dragons to contend with, while necromancers raise armies of the undead, where the earth is described as a flat disk standing on pillars like a table, where it's covered with a giant crystal dome with windows in it to let the rain in because outer space is full of water, where the sun and the moon are both within that firmament and they're both supposed to be the same size, that they're both lights and that they're both different from the stars, and that the stars are relatively tiny objects that can be trodden on when they get blown out of the sky by a storm. Yet you say that evolution is unbelievable? Simply because you insist on misrepresenting self-replicating organisms as if they were mere machines that couldn't replicate themselves? Your unsupported delusion is faith-based, meaning that you must defend the faith against any and all evidence to the contrary. Yet you pretend that evolution is unreasonable? Religious faith is the definition of unreasonable. You're pleading for magical miracles of the supernatural, yet you pretend that naturalism is somehow unnatural? This is a combination of the logical fallacy of false equivalence, where you want to create the illusion of an equal playing field that does not exist in this case, and projection, where you try to project all of your own faults onto those who will not share them. This fallacy is often interpreted as the pot calling the kettle black, but in this case it's more like the pot calling the silverware black, because you're not accusing me of what we're both guilty of. You're accusing me of what you alone are guilty of, as if you were me talking to you. The author later writes, The basis for this departure from what is natural and reasonable to believe is not fact observation or experience, but rather unreasonable extrapolations from abstract probabilities, mathematics, and philosophy. Again, you're describing your own position, not mine. Evolution is observed, experienced, and documented in peer-reviewed scientific literature. But as you yourself have demonstrated in this series, creationism is unreasonable extrapolations from abstract probabilities, mathematics, and extremely skewed philosophy. Our contrasted positions are not just two different sides of the same coin. Evolution is a reality, and creation is a fantasy. Your position is so weak, and you're not allowed to honestly reconsider it, that you have to lie about it in order to maintain your illusion in your own mind. Now the second source. In concluding, it is important to realize we are not inferring design from what we do not know, but from what we do know.
We are not inferring design to account for a black box, but to account for an open box. A man from a primitive culture who sees an automobile might guess that it was powered by the wind or an antelope hidden under the car. But when he opens the hood and sees the engine, he immediately realizes it was designed. In the same way, biochemistry has opened the cell to examine what makes it run, and we see that it, too, was designed. Remember that Michael Behe had made this claim a number of times and was repeatedly refuted by the scientific community before being ultimately discredited in a court of law. At that time, it became obvious that his lie about seeing design in the cell wasn't based on anything he actually knew, but what he refused to know or acknowledge because of a preferred belief. It was a shock to people of the 19th century when they discovered, from observations science had made, that many features of the biological world could be ascribed to natural selection. It is a shock to us in the 20th century to discover, from observations science has made, that the fundamental mechanisms of life cannot be ascribed to natural selection and therefore were designed. But we must deal with our shock as best we can and go on. The theory of undirected evolution is already dead, but the work of science continues. End of quote. This is another bald-faced lie. Upon publication of Darwin's definitive work a century and a half ago, creationism died an abrupt death right then, and evolution has only become better and better supported ever after. Creationism has been scientifically dead since the horse and buggy days, and that's not going to change. Remember, true science always harmonizes with the facts, all of them. Believers in God or creation need never fear the facts of science. No honest person need fear the facts of science. If you want to understand what is really true, then of course you would want to know where you're wrong about what and how so that you can correct it, and you would thank whoever corrected you. But if belief in God is more important to you than knowing what is really real, then yeah, you're going to be afraid of science, and you'll likely fear many other truths too. This author concluded by implying there is directed evolution often called theistic evolution, meaning God directed the gradual process of all things evolving. Many like to declare, I believe in God, I just think evolution was his method of choice. This introduces a truly great question. Can Christians accept evolution? Is this compatible with the Bible? and following Jesus Christ. What does the New Testament say? What did Christ say? I will answer these questions in detail following this series. Look for Can a Christian Believe Evolution? You will be shocked. Whether God exists or not is irrelevant. Because either way, even if there really is a God, evolution is still a verifiable fact and the Bible is still man-made mythology and clearly wrong. So the only way any reasonable person could believe in God is if they allow that he had let the earth bring forth living creatures instead of conjuring separate creations out of nothing, because we know that didn't happen. The facts of science led two world-famous scientists to see an intelligent designer behind the complexity of the universe. The brilliant Albert Einstein admitted, Everyone who is seriously involved in the pursuit of science becomes convinced that some spirit is manifest in the laws of the universe, one that is vastly superior to that of man.
In this way, the pursuit of science leads to a religious feeling of a special sort, he said. Einstein also said, it was of course a lie what you read about my religious convictions, a lie which is being systematically repeated. I do not believe in a personal God and have never denied this, but have expressed it clearly. If something is in me which can be called religious, then it is the unbounded admiration for the structure of the world so far as our science can reveal it. I have never talked to a Jesuit priest in my life and I'm astonished by the audacity to tell such lies about me. From the viewpoint of a Jesuit priest, I am, of course, and always have been, an atheist. I believe in Spinoza's God, who reveals himself in the lawful harmony of the world, not in a God who concerns himself with the fate and the doings of mankind. For me, the Jewish religion, like all others, is an incarnation of the most childish superstitions. The word God is for me nothing more than the expression and product of human weakness. The Bible, a collection of honorable but still primitive legends which are nevertheless pretty childish. No interpretation, no matter how subtle, can for me change this. Dr. Werner von Braun, the rocket scientist and father of American space program, declared... I find it is difficult to understand a scientist who does not acknowledge the presence of a superior rationality behind the existence of the universe as it is to comprehend a theologian who would deny the advance of science. Werner von Braun is a product of his culture in a time when polls reflect that scientists were significantly more likely to believe in a god than they are today. But I don't know why you cite him since he obviously wouldn't have agreed with either you or I. Of course, again, honest theologians would never deny science. Perhaps they don't, but you do. For example, you said there were no transitional species, and you said that the fossil record doesn't even exist. Evolution is based entirely on faith, because no true facts or proof have ever been found to support it. That is a lie. Rather than admit that scientists follow evidence, you lied again, saying that they're the ones using deception for unrealistic or religious reasons. No, sir. That's you. You don't even take your own advice. Remember, assumptions don't count. Neither do superstitious myths or traditions based on ignorance. This is you talking. You yourself said, What can be known from science? Only accept facts. Think rationally and clearly then accept what can be proven. But you don't. Your denial of science reveals that you are clearly not an honest theologian. You are a liar and a charlatan. The author of science, God, would certainly not be in conflict with what he authored. Except that God is not the author of science. Far from it. Science works exactly opposite of faith, and belief is not a requirement. Doubt is encouraged instead. Every fable in the Bible is in conflict with science because God is just a character in a story where man is the author. Now let's take an imaginary trip to the moon and look back at Earth. Consider all we left behind. Let's ask, what are the mathematical odds that the Earth, with all its plants, animals, ecosystems, and complex interdependence, could come into existence by itself? What are the actual odds all this could happen, that even one Earth could occur? What a surprise. Who would have thought that you would refer not to fact, observation, or experience, but rather 
unreasonable extrapolations from abstract probabilities, mathematics, and philosophy. What a hypocrite. Numerous scientists have recognized the improbable position of our planet's location in the solar system relative to its moon. For instance, if the Earth were 10% farther from the sun, it would freeze over. If 10% closer, it would quickly bake. Bearing in mind that 10% in this case is over 9 million miles, the Goldilocks zone is still easily broad enough to allow that in either direction. Astronomers estimate that the Earth would still be habitable whether we were 10 million miles closer to the sun or 10 million miles further out. Venus's orbit is 30% closer, and our planet would actually fare better than Venus does there because we don't have the runaway greenhouse effect. Mars is 50% further out, and we wouldn't be as cold there as Mars is for the same reason, because we're bigger and our core is still dynamic, so we have a thicker atmosphere protected by a magnetosphere. In fact, if we were 25% further out, we might be better off than where we are now. And if you swap the two so that Mars goes where Venus is and vice versa, both would be better off than either is now. You might have three habitable worlds then, if Mars were a bit bigger anyway, because there are many variables for whether and how well a planet can sustain life. If 20% closer to the moon, 35 to 50 foot tidal waves would twice a day engulf most of Earth's land surface at great speed. We've already been 20% closer to the moon, way back in Earth's history, shortly after the moon was formed. And 50-foot tidal waves don't wash inland very far at all. 50-foot tsunamis will, but only because of a very different type of wave with substantially more water at the same height. Dr. Hugh Ross sat down and carefully performed an extraordinarily complex mathematical computation. He took 123 separate parameters realized that today there are over 200, and calculated the odds that all these 123 factors necessary for the Earth to exist as we know it could have come together, just happened, on their own. A few must be listed to appreciate the complexity of his calculations. Ross computed an exact value for galaxy size, type, location, birth date of its sun, Proximity of solar nebula to a supernova eruption, number of moons, mass and distance from moons, tidal force, axis tilt of planet, distance from star, global distribution of continents, thickness of planet crust, atmospheric transparency, pressure, viscosity, carbon dioxide level, amount of chlorine, cobalt, copper, fluorine, nickel, potassium, and many other elements in the Earth's crust, oxygen to nitrogen ratio, volcanic activity, and 99 more. He then performed one final computation before arriving at a conclusion on the chances of the entire universe producing even one Earth. His calculation for finding all 123 parameters for a single Earth less than one chance in 10 to the 139th power. 100 million trillion 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 11 trillions, a lot of zeros, exists that even one such planet would occur anywhere in the universe. End of quote. A Vigentillion, for a long time the largest known number, has 63 zeros. But the odds of one Earth anywhere in the universe involves a number so immensely large as to absolutely dwarf a Vigentillion. 
But the chance that the universe was conjured by an incantation spell is simply zero. And the chances of a magical, anthropomorphic, immortal, immaterial mind existing without any sort of brain is also zero. However, if you calculate the odds of both you and I being born and raised when, where, and how we were, with all the experiences that influenced us to become who we are today, to then confront each other in this precise way, is another absurdly improbable occurrence. Just like virtually everything else that has already happened today, when you take everything into account. Just because something seems unlikely doesn't mean God did it. Just because you don't understand it doesn't mean God did it. Arguing from incredulity is a logical fallacy, not evidence. It doesn't imply a God, it just shows what you don't know. If something is unexplained, it doesn't mean that the explanation is God. It means that we don't know and neither do you. Everything that, is, everything that used to be unexplained was blamed on the supernatural, and that always turned out to be the wrong answer every single time. So if you want to propose an explanation, you have to show that the facts support that. If you can't show that you're right, you're not. Understand, the universe is inseparable from the laws of mathematics. Any mathematician worth his salt would admit the earth was created exactly as we see it. Wrong again, or should I say, still. Each of these men are mathematicians famous in their field. Each one individually worth substantially more than all of their collective salt. Yet none of them agree with you. They all know better because they know your figures just don't add up, and you can't even see it. So then the universe was created by God. No. That is still absurd, unsupported conjecture, and you have yet to provide any reason to believe you. Lies, ignorance, and logical fallacies aren't going to work. You have to show evidence indicating a God. Without evidence that God exists, then there evidently is no God. See how that works? Let's at least pause to ask, why are people, maybe including you, willing to believe the proof that God created the heavens and the earth as he said, but not willing to believe he created all life on earth, plants and animals, as he said? Make yourself see and come to grips with this inconsistency. God never said that he created the earth. The Bible did. Or rather, the mere fallible men who wrote the Bible did. Likewise, God never said he created animals either. Again, primitive mythmakers made that up. The Bible is not the word of God. It is the highly dubious word of ignorant, bigoted, superstitious savages with no understanding of the real world. Even you know more than they did. Although that's not saying much. <laughs>